Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the Haunted Collection with your host, writer, paranormal investigator, and haunted collector Kevin Kane, back to share some chilling tales from the dark side. Welcome back to a new episode. I finally managed to get back on right at the end of August to do another episode. I always like to try to do two episodes a month, and my voice has been coming and going the last couple of weeks because of allergy issues, but tonight I'm going to try to muscle through this and share a story with you. And also a creepy poem. But first I want to invite you to myhaunteddolls.com and I invite you to please check out the shop because my new book has just released. It's called Urban Legends. Tell, or actually, it's about urban legends, but it's called Urban Darkness. Tales from Legends and Lore. Urban Darkness, and it's based on Urban Legends, so that's why I almost accidentally said the name (laughs) Urban Legends, but uh, these are fiction stories that I have come up with based on world-famous urban legends. These are creative ways of telling these stories, and I hope you'll read the book and enjoy it. It is available on my website, paperback, autographed. Or you can go to Amazon and get the hardbound, the paperback, or the Kindle version. And it should be available in all of the other online retailers. So please, please buy a copy today and show your support. Also on the website, myhaunteddolls.com, there's also a link to my Redbubble store where you can buy t-shirts with this show's logo on it. You can buy hats and scarves and all kinds of accessories out there, so please do check that out and show your support. And also go to the link page and visit my YouTube channel, My Haunted Dolls on YouTube. I think you can just go to youtube.com forward slash My Haunted Dolls and find it there and see videos I've created with the haunted items in my collection. Like and follow and watch and show your support. And now for our creepy story of the evening. This is a story that came, uh, originated from Great Britain somewhere. And we're about to find out more about it. It's called, very creepy title, it's called Something in the Room. There's a story told by Colonel Mervyn O. Gorman, who was a pioneer in popularizing the automobile in Great Britain, and a well-known storyteller. He has always swore that the story was absolutely true. O. Gorman was an enthusiast about all forms of transportation, 
And when he was a young man, he took up cycling, which was just becoming popular. One day, he cycled from his home to a place called Shipton Manor in Oxfordshire, where he had been invited to spend the weekend at a friend's country estate. It was a long and difficult ride, and he was completely fatigued when he finally arrived. O'Gorman got through dinner, but just barely, and he was so tired that he had to go to bed immediately afterward. His room was a large room, but only dimly lit by candles. He was asleep almost the moment his head hit the pillow. Later that night, he awoke. He had heard nothing. He had seen nothing. But he knew that there was something in the room with him. He lay there in the darkness, listening. And then suddenly, there was a sound. O'Gorman described it as a long, drawn, shuddering sigh. It ended on a sob. The sob of a tired and weary person. And it originated about a foot away from his head. The sound terrified him. He could not move. Then, after about five minutes of straining every nerve to catch another noise, he felt the bed move underneath him. Something heaved the bed upward and then let it down. Once again came that sighing sound. And then, nothing. Despite his terror, O'Gorman was so fatigued that he fell asleep again after about twenty minutes. Then he was awakened again. The room was completely dark, but he knew that it was still there. And it was moving. He could hear a slow, dragging sound. After that came the clink of what must be a chain. The image of a fettered ghost dragging its chains through all eternity came immediately to mind. Then the most terrifying manifestation of all occurred. The thing in the room reached for the door, which was just about ten feet from O'Gorman's bed. It hit the door with a soft thud, like a pillow that had been thrown against the door. Though the room was almost completely dark, O'Gorman could dimly make out a large, formless shape reared up against the door. Then the shape disappeared. 
Once again came that sobbing, shuddering sigh. O'Gorman was now sure that he was alone in a room with the tormented spirit of the victim or perpetrator of some ancient crime. He just lay there in the dark, too frightened to reach for a match or a candle. If there was a light, what terrible thing might he have illuminated? Once again, all was quiet. Somehow, O'Gorman drifted off to sleep. At the sound of a footstep, he awoke in terror. But it was light now. A servant had entered the room and was opening the blinds and wishing him good morning. The man turned toward the foot of the bed. Suddenly, his jaw dropped. He stared at the floor in disbelief. Good heavens, sir, he gasped. You don't mean to say that our dog has been in here all night, sleeping under the bed, and with his chain on, too? Here, come out of it, Bruce. Time you were fed. (laughs) So it was a dog all along. A little bit of a humor there. So, that's just to whet our appetite, because I do have a story that's quite creepy that comes from New York. And this one is called The Last Tenant. In New York State, not long ago, there was a major legal controversy over whether someone selling or renting a house had to disclose whether the house was supposedly haunted. But in Scotland, it is illegal to say a house is haunted if that hurts the chances of selling or renting the property. And it doesn't make any difference if the place really is haunted. A family called the Gordons was prevented from giving the address of the house in which they had a most terrifying, ghostly experience when the landlord threatened them with a lawsuit for what is called slander of property. In a sense, the landlord was right. Some people may like the idea of sharing a house with a nice friendly, well-behaved ghost, but this was anything but. No one who ever heard the Gordon story would ever want to rent any place occupied by the ghost they encountered. The house did not look haunted. It was particularly ancient, either, at least in terms of the city of Edinburgh, in which it was located, or Edinburgh, as it should be pronounced. 
The house was some 80 years old when the Gordons moved in. It was quite a large place and had been broken up into flats and shops and offices. What the Scots called the ground floor and first floor, which Americans would call the first and second floors, had been converted into small shops and office space. The Gordons rented a large flat on the second floor. The top floor was unoccupied and apparently used just for storage. Within a week of the families moving in, Mrs. Gordon knew that something was wrong. At night, she heard the footsteps of someone rushing up the stairs to the top floor. The footsteps made so much noise that it was keeping her awake. She complained about the noise to the landlord, but he assured her that he knew nothing about it. I can't imagine who's making the noise, he said blandly. It may be someone next door. Sounds are so often deceptive, particularly at night. But I assure you the rooms above you are unoccupied. Mrs. Gordon was not entirely convinced. The next night she lay awake, listening for the sounds. At first, nothing happened. She was, however, oppressed by a nearly overpowering sense of evil, as though something sinister and hostile had entered the room. She was too terrified even to turn on the light. Then she heard the thing. She could find no better words to describe it. Go out to the landing and rush up the stairs. That is what she heard. For what must have been half an hour, she heard the sound of someone in boots running around the empty rooms above. The next morning at breakfast, Mrs. Gordon asked her daughters if they had heard any noises in the night. No, nothing, not even a mouse, <laughs> they laughingly replied. Mrs. Gordon felt rather foolish. She mentally wrote the whole incident off as a bad dream, and for the next several weeks, nothing unusual happened. Then Mrs. Gordon went away on a trip, and her eldest daughter, Diana, a young woman with a reputation for a realistic and no-nonsense approach to life, took over her mother's bedroom. One evening, Diana was in the bedroom just before dinner. Suddenly, the bedroom door swung open, and something, she could not tell what, rushed past her and on to the landing. With a great clatter of what sounded like heavy boots, the thing quickly went upstairs to the empty rooms. At first, Diana was more curious than frightened. She ran up the stairs and heard a terrific racket in the room above her mother's. 
Unafraid, she went to the door and threw it open. There was something. She could see only a vague and filmy outline, but something standing in front of a large clock, which apparently it was winding. Now she was afraid. What was the thing? What if it should turn around and see her? She was all alone in the fading light and in a big spooky room full of old furniture. She was completely paralyzed with fear for a moment. The thing seemed too busy with the clock to take any notice of her. Then it stopped winding and appeared to be at the point of turning around. At that moment, a familiar voice calling her to dinner floated up from the floor below. That broke the spell, and Diana turned and ran downstairs, not noticing what reaction the shape at the clock had to the sudden activity. When Diana got her breath back, she described to her sister what had happened. Neither one suggested that they go upstairs to investigate any further. Diana moved back into the room with her sister, though they got little sleep that night. Nothing else happened until Mrs. Gordon returned. The evening after she got back, as she was preparing to go to bed, the door to her bedroom swung open. Standing there was the figure of a man. He was short, with huge shoulders and long arms. He was wearing a pea jacket, a kind of coat commonly worn by seamen, baggy trousers and heavy boots. His large head was covered with a tangled mass of yellowish hair, but of his face Mrs. Gordon could see almost nothing, for he was standing in the shadows. He was carrying what appeared to be a small bundle of red and white rags in one hand. While Mrs. Gordon was staring at this strange and terrifying figure, it suddenly swung around, rushed to the landing, and in a series of jumps, disappeared up the staircase. That was it. Unlike the characters in so many horror films who stay in the haunted house after repeated warnings and encounters with a ghost, Mrs. Gordon did not want to chance another encounter. She and her daughters packed up and moved out that very next morning. As the report spread that the house was haunted, Mrs. Gordon got a series of indignant and threatening letters from her former landlord. That is why she would never give the address of the house in which she had lived. Mrs. Gordon also got letters about the early history of the house and possible reasons for the haunting. Only one of these letters sounded plausible, 
It said that some years before, the rooms she had rented had been occupied by a retired captain in the merchant service. He was a strange man, the letter said, who continued to wear nautical clothes despite the fact that he had not been on a ship in years. He was also a very heavy drinker. The drink was rapidly destroying his mind. At the time, the rooms above the captain's were rented to a couple who had a small infant. The baby's crying annoyed the captain. He warned the baby's mother that if she did not keep her child quiet, he would not be answerable for the consequences. But the warnings appeared to have no effect. One day, in a drunken rage, he ran upstairs when the mother was temporarily away, and he killed the infant with a knife that he found on the kitchen table. He then stuffed the body into a large clock that stood in a corner of the room. Of course, the crime was discovered almost immediately, and the captain was found in his own rooms, drunk and unconscious. He was arrested on a charge of murder, but was found to be insane and was committed to a lunatic asylum. Within a few years, he killed himself. Mrs. Gordon was never able to confirm the contents of the letter, and she did not try. This seemed a possible explanation for the phenomenon, but she did not know if it were true. All she knew was what she had seen. And as far as she and her daughters were concerned, that was more than enough. Now that one was a scary and also gruesome story. I mean, who can imagine the kind of insanity you must have to want to kill a baby like that? And uh, that's pretty creepy, the way the ghost was throwing up and open doors and jumping around stairs, storming around the upstairs rooms. I can see why people had trouble living in that house. And now, before we end the episode, I wanted to share a spooky haunting poem. It's a poem I just recently came across that gave me a bit of a shiver. It was written by Robert Irvin Howard, and it's called Dead Man's Hate. They hanged John Farrell in the dawn amid the marketplace. At dusk came Adam Brand to him and spat upon his face. Ho, neighbors all, spake Adam Brand, see ye John Farrell's fate? 
Tis proven here a hempen noose is stronger than man's fate. For heard ye not John Farrell's vow to be avenged upon me? Come life or death, see how he hangs high on the gallows tree. Yet never a word the people spoke in fear and wild surprise, for the grisly corpse raised up its head and stared with sightless eyes. And with strange motions, slow and stiff, pointed at Adam Brand, and clambered down the gibbet tree, the noose within its hand. With gaping mouth stood Adam Brand like a statue carved of stone, till the dead man laid a clammy hand hard on his shoulder bone. Then Adam shrieked like a soul in hell, the red blood left his face. And he reeled away in a drunken run through the screaming marketplace. And close behind the dead man came with a face like a mummy's mask. And the dead joints cracked and the stiff legs creaked with their unwanted task. Men fled before the flying twain or shrank with bated breath. And they saw on the face of Adam Brand the sill set there by death. He reeled on buckling legs that failed, yet on and on he fled. So through the shuddering marketplace the dying fled the dead. At the riverside fell Adam Brand with a scream that rent the skies. Across him fell John Farrell's corpse, nor ever the twain did rise. There was no wound on Adam Brand, but his brow was cold and damp. For the fear of death had blown out his life as a witch blows out a lamp. His lips were writhed in a hard grin, like a fiend's on Satan's coals. And the men that looked on his face that day, his stare still haunts their souls. Such was the fate of Adam Brand, a strange, unearthly fate. For stronger than death or hemp and noose are the fires of a dead man's hate. That's my kind of poem. That was pretty creepy. Imagine this man running from... Apparently had helped cause the fate of this dead man and now was fleeing that very same dead man who was hell-bent on exacting revenge. And that was a pretty good poem, if I might say so myself. And now we come to an end of this episode. Once again, I want to thank you for tuning in and I invite you to visit my website, myhaunteddolls.com. Purchase my new book, Urban, Le- uh, Urban Darkness, Tales from Legends and Lore. Urban Darkness, Tales from Legends and Lore. Get your copy today. 
Be sure to check out my Redbubble store and also follow my YouTube channel. Until next time, keep those doors and windows locked. Keep away from dead men. But by all means, have a happy haunting.